Well, this is not like any Easter we've known. Usually Easter is noisy, joyously loud, trumpets blaring, thunderous choirs, crowd-filled churches, a live, boisterous celebration. This Easter just may be more like the first Easter than any Easter we've celebrated. The disciples are cloistered and quiet and huddled in a room. A few of the women in hushed tones silently run to the tomb, exchanging thoughts in whispers. They come across an empty tomb. They see an angel. They are awed. I think they are quieted by the just reverence and and just the moment that just seems so not anything they could have expected. And so a few of the women run off and Mary kind of lags behind and as she's going, she goes by a garden near the tomb and there's a gardener there that she sees and in whispered tones meets her Savior, her risen Lord. And it's all quiet. It's kind of like it is somewhat this morning. In these coronavirus-induced circumstances, God could actually be whispering to you, calling you, reaching out to you. I want to take this morning, and and we've been in Exodus and looking at Moses, and we're at the place now where they're ready to cross over from being slaves to being now free and living in victory and heading towards a land that had always been promised to them. And they're in that journey. And I want to share with you just four words. And and that first word is a word of counsel. It's what you've just heard. God whispers. And I think he calls to each one of us. Moses begins where we see this whole journey start. He's out in a desert, far away from everyone. He thinks he's blown it. He thinks his life at this point, he's 40 years of age. He's grown up in the courts of the king Pharaoh, and he's got all going for him. And, and then he, he kills a, an Egyptian in order to start a riot to free his people. And then he has to run, and he's on the lamb, and he's off as far away from life and civilization as he could be. And he's watching over flock. He's in his own coronavirus-induced situation. And he sees in the corner of his eye a bush. It's burning. And he continues to watch over the flock and he still sees a little bit later this bush. It's burning. But it's not being consumed. And it would be so easy to walk away from the whisper of that, that burning bush. But, but he's intrigued and he steps into it and walks toward it. And he hears the voice of God speak to him. His life from that day forward changed because he leaned into a whisper of God. And one of the words of counsel I have is in this time, pay attention. God doesn't cause this, but he allows a lot of things to happen. And one of the things he might be allowing to happen for a lot of people is what I would call a Sabbath. You are forced to be quiet and alone together. And there will be opportunities where God will whisper to you about priorities maybe you have in your life. 
things around your family, things around your work, maybe around the career that you've been driving so hard for. And I just want to encourage you with a word of counsel. Pay attention to that. Many years ago, through some very difficult circumstances in my own life, it was painful, I was confused, it was one of those uncertain times, God whispered to me, and he, he called to me in a time when I was broken, I, I felt helpless, I was in one of those not in control, you know how we love just to manage and be in control, we'll manipulate, we'll do whatever we can to get what we think we most need. And Jesus called me to know him in that time. He called me to follow him in a way that I had never heard his voice before. And it wasn't an audible voice, but in my struggle, I felt a prompting to pick up my Bible and to read it. And I turned to a passage of scripture that spoke directly to my need at that moment. And I I look at it and I go, it could have been coincidental, but I don't believe it was. It was God who was in a whisper speaking to my heart. And I'm so grateful that I listened. It changed the whole course of my life. I said in tears in that moment, I remember lying on my bed saying, Jesus, I'm lost. I will follow you with my life. This year is the year of the Bible, and and some of you are reading the Bible. Some of you have not maybe picked up a Bible to read it. There are so many different translations that can make it come alive. I would encourage you, this would be a great time to start reading. It would be a great time to expect God to speak to you when you start reading his word. And if you don't hear anything, just keep reading. Because at some point, God will match up the circumstance and the whisper. So God whispers and calls to us. We have no idea. I mean, none of us has any idea what God really has in store for us, if we will just listen. The other word of caution is is God warns and he waits for us. You see this all over in the book of Exodus, and we'll look at it also in the life of Christ. Moses responds to God's whisper and he, he, he hears the call, he goes to Egypt, and he brings comfort to a whole group of people, his, the Hebrew slaves. So one part of the narrative is God preparing and protecting a, a people who are oppressed, who, who need to hear the comfort of God. Their only hope for freedom is in God. But there's a, another storyline. In, in God's sending Moses to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt who are proud And they oppose God. And it doesn't have to be, when I think about opposing God, this kind of, I'm in your face, I don't want you, God. It can be just kind of like, I want to be the boss of my own life, God. Maybe someday. But right now, I'm in charge. And Moses comes with warnings of God's judgment. And a lot of that judgment is just consequences of decisions that are made without God. Ten times with specific plagues, each more intense and devastating than the one before. God in mercy continues just to make it more difficult till finally Pharaoh um, repents. He's not sorry and wants to change his ways. He's just now in a hard place and he's ready to let him go. But God continued to warn him and he continued to be merciful and he continued to hope for a heart change and and he continued to hope that that proud and destructive path that they were on, they wouldn't face. And he warned them. He gave a word of course, a warning and waited. You know, that's just what good people do. Think about it. Good fathers, they warn their children. Good moms, they say, hey, wait. They, they have a lot of patience, but eventually it's time. It's, it's over. You know, we, we've got to act on this. So do teachers and so do others 
like employees and employers and, and, and others. Well, did you know that after all that Hitler did to the Jews and after all the massive merciless bombing raids over London and after all the havoc that was wreaked over the world, did you know that just prior to the bombing of Germany at the end of the World War II, the Allied forces, before dropping any bombs in mercy, dropped leaflets of what I call mercy. Before unleashing a whirlwind of destruction, the U.S. warned the Germans with millions of leaflets printed in the German language, and they dropped them from planes over Germany so they'd know the seriousness of the coming carnage. And if they didn't surrender, they were going to face the consequences. It's just good people warn people. And so this U.S. G9 leaflet was dropped where it says, Tagunacht mit vereinten Kraften. And, and, and that, that little leaflet basically says on the front, day and night with United Aircraft. And then on the back, when the people would turn it over, the leaflet said, Adolf Hitler declared war on the United States on 11 December 1941, and the American bombers give their answers. Attack. Bombing with the RAF all day and night at the most valuable military targets in all of the Reich. And then at the very bottom of the leaflet in small print, it says the leaflet was dropped by an American bomber. Well, obviously, these leaflets removed any element of surprise. They were basically merciful. It's what loving and good people do. When they see someone headed towards destruction by the consequences of choices they've made, you warn them. You try and get them to stop. And so the U.S., in an act of mercy, provided warning. And that's what you see in the story of Moses, but you see it in the story of Jesus as well. Jesus comes both to the oppressed and to the proud. To those who were oppressed needing healing, Jesus hardly had to say anything. His love and his mercy and kindness, it drew crowds to them. They lived with the humbling consequences of their sin every day. They didn't need to be guilted or shamed. They needed to be loved and set free. And so Jesus came with this incredible message of the Father's love. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to know that what happens on the cross and what he's done on Easter is to set you free. That you don't have to live in that shame and guilt. But then there's another storyline here that Jesus comes to people like the Pharaohs. They were called Pharisees and others. And, and they opposed Jesus. And again, it didn't always have to be a raised fist opposition somewhere. It's just kind of like, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't really trust you. I, don't, I, I really want to run my own life. But for all those who opposed Jesus, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religiously proud, anyone who opposed God's rule in their life, unwilling to submit, Jesus came with a warning. He said things like, I am the way. Humble yourself and follow me. He said, I am the door. Trust me and enter into eternal life. I am the truth. Humble yourself. Listen and learn from me. I'm the life. Repent from your sin and from your self-rule and let me begin to rule in your life. And he warned And he came with a word of caution. God, like any good person, comes and says, I love you. And I want to lead you and I want to guide you in your life. You know, after the 10th plague, after all those warnings, Pharaoh finally lets Moses and the people of Israel go. Again, not out of humility, but more out of fear. He has no other choice. 
And Moses gathers together this refuge group of this of Hebrew slaves, these kind of refugee group of Hebrew slaves. And under God's guidance, because God loves to guide and to lead those who are willing to follow him, he leads this group of refugees on this right towards this well-known road that would lead them right to the promised land. It was basically the shortcut and the, the most direct direction to that road. Because God promised that he would lead them. So Moses is leading the people, and at one point on the journey, before they even left Egypt, they're just about to get on the interstate towards that promised land. And God says to Moses, no, don't take the shortcut. I want you to take the long cut. And God just has that kind of habit of doing that. He'll, he'll all of a sudden come in and you think you know how to get where you need to go. And God goes, no, 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 I, I really, let me lead you. And so it says in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 through 18, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness and toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. And I, I think it's important to recognize when he says ready for battle, it's not what they were like a militia group. But God had asked them and said even earlier in Scripture that, that Moses was to get them in uniformed, organized groups. Some believe in groups of 50. And, and in that kind of orderly way with commanders over them, they could be given direction, and they would, like an army, move efficiently and quickly. But here's the picture you have to see. They're, it looks like they're wandering in the desert. So if you can see up in that left-hand corner, there's this, the land of Goshen, and you see they start out. So don't pay attention to anything in the middle. I just want that little part right where the, the sea is, and you see the delta of the Nile there. They, they start out, and they walk right by that dotted line, which is the shortcut. And God says, no, no, I don't want you to go there. And he leads them down to Sukkoth, and he leads them in that area, and they camp there overnight. Pharaoh's watching and he's thinking, oh, they're going to cut across this other way. But then God comes to him and says something very interesting. He says to him, no, I want you to go north. And so they start to head back north. And at this point, Pharaoh's watching and they're pinned in by the sea, the desert. And he's going, I'm not so sure I want to let go of my workforce. And he begins to change his mind. And you can think, if you just think about the people there, as you experience them, as they're walking through this, they're probably wondering, where's Moses taking us? And the greater question is, what's God about? And I just want to share with you that God does want to lead you and guide you. But the Lord doesn't always take us by the route that we expect. God calls you. He whispers to you. He'll at times warn you. And then he comes to you and says, I want to lead you and guide your life. And yet, as he comes to lead and guide you, he takes you in places and to routes and you kind of just go, God, what are you doing? Why the long cut? What's this about? You have no idea how well God knows you. You have no idea that God sees in you and he sees outside And he knows where he needs to lead and guide you. God will even use the experience you're in right now. You may be saying, God, I never expected to lose my job. I never expected to be furloughed. God, I never expected a good friend of mine 
to be on the front lines facing this every day. God, I never expected a relative of mine to come down with coronavirus. God, I, I, I don't, what are you doing? But God knows our hearts. He knows our deepest needs. He knows our most treasured desires. He knows you. And he promises to guide those who will look to him. Exodus chapter 14, 1 through 3 says, Order the Israelites to turn back and camp at Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore, across from Baal, Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness. And that's exactly what Pharaoh thinks. Warning after warning, blow after blow. His country is decimated, yet Pharaoh hardens his heart. He sees the Hebrew slaves, his cheap labor, leaving, and he can't help himself. As the story continues, as we read in Exodus 14, when the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all those Israelite slaves get away? And the Egyptians chased after them with the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots and his charioteers and his troops. And as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. And they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And there's a bit of kind of irony to that whole statement, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Because it's, as you all know, and if you think of Egypt... Egypt, even today, is known as kind of the land of graves. There's pyramids after pyramids. And, and in that day, they were kind of the city that magnified death. So in a sense, they're saying, that there's plenty of graves back in Egypt. But why would we want to be a corpse in the wilderness? You just have to get into their experience for a moment. And maybe it won't be too hard for you. Maybe that's what you're experiencing right now. A kind of predicament that you don't understand. They don't get it. God has just led the people of Israel down this small tract of land. So here they come, and they're in this small tract of land with water on each side and and with a dust kicking up from Pharaoh's army coming after them. 600 chariots, 200,000 in the troops that that are coming after this group of people, and you can understand their fear. They're sitting ducks for Pharaoh's army. And they're in this point, and they're going, they're mad at Moses. He could be mad at someone saying, I can't believe you led me this way. They're ultimately mad at God. And so finally God speaks to Moses. Here he is. He's as nervous as they are. And God says to Moses, tell the people, do not be afraid. Exodus chapter 14, 13 and 14. Do not be afraid. Just stand firm and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And and that's kind of a resurrection word of hope. God saves and fights for you when you cry out to him. They cry out to Moses. Moses turns and cries out to God. And God in a bit testily, he's a little, in kind of a testily way, he says, quit crying, Moses. After all I've done, you still have trouble believing I'm going to take care of you? Lift your staff, stretch it out over the sea, and Moses does that. That's exactly what scripture says. Listen to chapter 14, verse 21 through 22. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. Catch that, with a strong east wind. And the wind blew all night, all that night. 
turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on the dry ground with walls of water on each side. Now we find that kind of a difficult thing to believe. And as I was studying, I, I came across a, a article in the Washington Post by reporter Chris Mooney. It was on a guy named Carl Drews who has done a lot of research. And, and I'm going to read some of the Washington Post to you because Mooney... I, I, writes a story back in 2014 on December 8th. He says, the idea may sound hard to believe, but Drew's research in storm surge was conducted for his atmospheric and ocean science thesis at the University of Colorado Boulder. Published in a paper-reviewed journal, published in a peer-reviewed journal, and then published by his employer, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, a top U.S. research center. And here's what Mooney goes on to say. Taken as a piece of science, that establishes um, that physical... This is is a hurricane researcher, Greg Holland, says, taken as a piece of science that establishes the physical possibility of a body of water parting, it's solid work, says Holland, who is familiar with the paper. Did the parting of the sea really happen? We'll never know, says Holland. But Carl Drews used impeccable science to show both where and how it may have happened. Drew's research seeks to answer whether a natural weather occurrence could part a body of water. In his work, Drew's describes a coastal effect called a wind setdown, in which strong winds, a little over 60 miles per hour, create a push on the coastal water, which in one location creates a storm surge, but in the location from which the wind pushes, in this case the east, the water moves away. Such occurrences have been observed in the past in Lake Erie, among other places, and also, he writes, in the Nile Delta itself in the year 1882. Wind setdown happens just as often as a storm surge, but hardly ever hurts people. It just blows a harbor completely dry, says Drews. So this water slashes from one side of the body to the other and leaves a dry place. He even has a video that shows how it's done. So Mooney continues in this Washington Post article. He says, as to the occurrence back in February 1882, Major General Alexander B. Tullock of the British Army reported this event happening on Lake Manzala along the Nile Delta. Here's Major Tullock's report back in 1882. One day, when our team was surveying between Port Said and Kantara, a gale of wind from the eastward set in and became so strong that I had to cease work. The next morning, on going out, I found that Lake Manzala, which is situated on the west side of the Suez Canal, had totally disappeared, the effect of high wind on the shallow water having actually driven it away beyond the horizon. And the locals were walking about on the dried mud where the day before the fishing boats, now aground, had been floating. And they go on, and Major Tullock is interviewed at that time by a guy named Mr. M. Rook, And he was asked a series of questions. Rook says, I should like to ask the present depth of Lake Mazella near Port Set. And Tullock said, it was only about five, six feet. Rook said, where was the water driven to? Tullock, it was packed up up to the northwest like a wall. Rook, could you see it in, in, in any way? And he said, it was seven miles off. It had absolutely disappeared. Now listen as I read again. Exodus 14, verses 19 through 31. Some of the verses in here. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of the camp, and the pillar of the cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. And the cloud settled between 
the Egyptian and the Israelite camps. And then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. And the wind blew all night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground and the walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted the chariot's wheels, making the chariots difficult to drive, which makes sense when you would go across a a dried bed. When you try and take uh, carts across there, they would get get, um, stuck. Let's get out of here, away from the Israelites, they started shouting. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. You may not see it. You may be standing at the edge right before God's ready to work, but know this, the Lord is fighting for you. And when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. And they put their faith in the Lord and his servant, Moses. This word I have for you on Resurrection Sunday morning in the midst of this coronavirus crisis is this. Put your hope in God. God saves and fights for anyone who cries out to him for help. Here's some parallels between what I call the great Passover and crossover in Egypt and in Christ. When God was making this clear, the salvation that he wanted people to know, think about this, just three days before, in the time of Moses and Exodus, three days before, he said there would be coming judgment. Death would, would enter through all of Egypt. But if there was people who would put on their doorpost the blood of the lamb, death would pass over. Physical death would not happen. And then three days later, it's kind of an interesting parallel, three days later, they're standing at the edge of this sea of reeds. They're pinned in with no hope. And God parts the water and they walk across. I call it the great crossover. They are now on their way to a whole new life. They are no longer slaves. They are no longer victims. They have a whole new identity. They are people. They are children. They are sons and daughters of God, their father. And they are on their way to a land that he's promised them. Here's what is the parallel. Three days before this resurrection Sunday, there was a great passing over. In the Old Testament, they talk about the children of Israel. And it was a very concrete, think about it, very physical thing. They were physical slaves in a, in a land where there was physical death which they were passed over from. Judgment was, was not placed upon anyone who put the blood on the doorframe. And then three days later, as they stood, and they took Egyptians with them, people who wanted to go with, as they stood together, God opened a way and they crossed over. This is what Easter's about. Three days before, Jesus was placed on a cross. And we think of the three blood spots that were placed on a door. They were on each side and then up on the top. But if you look at the cross, it shows the love of God that comes down to us. Because, again, the three spots of blood are on the hands and on the feet. And it, and it gives you almost this, this picture of God coming to you, saying, you know what? 
No matter your sin, no matter what you've done, no matter the guilt, no matter the shame, no matter if you've been rejecting me, even with a high hand, but if you will just take and trust and apply to your heart and your life the saving work of Jesus. And that's really good to know. The cross. There's a passing over of judgment. Anyone who believes. But here's what's really important about Easter. Three days later, there's a crossing over. Jesus goes down to the pit on behalf of us and he comes out with life And the empty tomb, as the women went there in these hushed, whispered tones, was the receipt of the fact that that price that had been paid for our own sin, our own heart, that is opposed to God, that's the receipt that says it was accepted. And there's a crossing over, a passing over from judgment, but a crossing over that says anyone who believes in that, this is a resurrection story, this is a word of hope, God will fight for you. And God will save you. And it's not about physical death, but it's about a new kind of life that he gives you today, right now, that does enter into eternity. That was physical, everything about it. But here he says, spiritually, there's a life that I want to give you in your spirit, no matter what your circumstances are. I want you to live with the confidence that you do not have to worry about death spiritually. And yes, we will die physically unless the Lord comes back. But you don't have to worry even about that. There is a life eternal with me because I've crossed over from life, from death to life. And so that's the Easter message of Word of Hope. God whispers. I'm going to just close with this story. I had a friend who served in the South African elite forces. It's um, comparable, I guess, to our Navy SEALs. On many occasions, he would be dropped into the jungles of Angola to fight against the spread of communism, which was seeping through Africa in the 60s and early 70s. As a small military unit, they'd go out about three to five or six in number, depending on what was needed. And they would sleep, he said, during the day, and they'd move at night. He told me that on a number of occasions, he and his team would find the perfect spot to sleep during um, the day. And, And they would set it all up and... And as they got it almost set up on a number of occasions, he'd hear this kind of still small voice in his heart say, not here. And time and again, that very spot where they were planning to set up and sleep would be the exact spot that these Angolan um, communist fighters would pass through. And he kind of thought of that with a sense of awe and amazement, didn't quite understand it. I met him years after that, and his wife had begun coming to our church and and the church that I pastored, and and he would come to some events from time to time, and I got to know him and asked if he'd ever have lunch. He said, let's have lunch. We had lunch. I invited him to to study the Bible with me with a few other guys. He decided, okay, I guess that's okay. I said I'd buy his breakfast. And um, we, we studied through the Gospel of John, and as we were going through the Gospel of John, at one point, as he continued to read the Word of God, the Word of God began to speak to him. He started to hear the whispers of God's voice, and at a certain point, he opened his heart, and, and he, he, with tears in his eyes, um, uh, as he received Christ, he said to me a little bit, just a few sentences after that, he said, I feel like a son whose father had been paying his traffic tickets. And I didn't quite understand what he meant by that, so I asked him to explain, and he explained to me that he would hear this whisper, 
And then he would move this tent, and, and this is the first time I heard this story. He'd move this tent, and he'd marvel at how the enemy would go through right where he's supposed to be. And I said, well, how does that apply to the tickets being paid? And he says, I just learned that the voice was the Holy Spirit. And that God, his Father, was warning me and protecting me. And all those years he'd been paying my tickets. And I didn't realize that till now. He realized in that moment that God had been fighting for him. And in that same way, you might in these times hear the whisper of God's voice and be be able to understand for the first time how much God has been fighting for you. You know, it's interesting though, he still had to do something. When he heard the whisper of that voice calling in his heart, he had to act upon what he heard. He could have stayed there and said, I forgot it. He didn't. He, in faith, believed what, what was in his heart was what was supposed to be and he moved. And I'm just going to challenge you to think about this as we hear this song. If God has been whispering to your heart, it's not enough to hear the whisper. It's not enough just to listen. You need to take an act of faith in what God is speaking to you about. It may be for the first time you might say, God, I'm tired of being the boss of me. I'm tired of my family feeling my consequences, of my work situation, of my own personal life. I'm really ready today for the first time for you to pass over my sin and that judgment and to cross over, bring me into a new life where your spirit, you, Jesus, begin to lead me. Let him be the king of kings in your life.